Payers want data. We ought to give them what they want. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'm joined today from the floor of an industry conference by pricing and market access expert Susan Saponsik and by medical affairs expert Suma Ramadas. Medical affairs plus market access, MA squared, today on the Cineos Health Podcast. We talked earlier with Suma Ramadas about how market access and medical affairs had links. And we're joined now also by Susan Saponsik. Susan Saponsik is the practice area lead for pricing and market access. We're going to be talking about how the market access piece comes into this. Susan Saponsik, you have a very interesting background. Just give what your background is and how that informs what you know about pricing and market access. So I'm an economist by training. I've been in the market access field for 20 years, starting in the late 90s with a large pharma company, working on pricing issues. During my pharma career, I spent a number of years in Belgium launching products around the world, negotiating with pricing and reimbursement authorities, as well as sitting within an R&D company giving market access input to early development. I've also led three consultancies in the market access area, building teams and offers globally. Glad to have you. Now, Suma, can you just give a, for those that maybe haven't heard the previous podcast, just give a summary of what we talked about last time. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. Last time or earlier, we started talking about how we have this idea or this concept of a medical strategic foundation. Essentially, we came to that because we understood that there are several evidentiary needs across the entire continuum, if you will. So clinical teams are really focused on the regulatory requirements and how to ensure that they're getting a product over their finish line, which is regulatory approval, all the way down to commercial who's thinking about how to actually position it in a way to optimize commercial success, HUR who's thinking about outcomes research and what's needed from a real-world evidence perspective, and finally market access who's really thinking about what's required for reimbursement, and in the U.S. specifically, how can they think about payers and how to reach payers, or in Europe with HEA bodies, et cetera. So the Medical Strategic Foundation, as we talked about, can help not only elevate the medical affairs function to play a more strategic role by pulling all those evidentiary needs in what we call a medical narrative, which essentially takes from A to Z, so thinking about disease state as well as unmet medical need, MOA, all the way down to HEOR, what is that narrative that you're trying to do and how are you trying to position the therapy or the science of your product within a particular set of guardrails or namely the landscape all the way through to now what are the stakeholders and how are each of my stakeholders going to consume evidence differently and how can I ensure that I'm tailoring my evidence so they actually understand it and it's relevant to them. And then we go from that, from the narrative, to what are the evidentiary needs that I have across this entire narrative or this entire story that we're trying to tell. And from there, how can we then communicate it? But I think the part that we're really focusing on today is that medical narrative that we just covered. As we think now about how market access deals with this medical affairs summary, is market access talking well currently to medical affairs, or is this a conversation that is a conversation that's never really worked well in the past and needs to work better in the future? Just tell me, how what's, what's the state of the art? Well, certainly there's a distribution of status across companies. Yeah. Some do this better than others. Some are just learning how to do it. Some don't necessarily do it at all. But really, the idea is that 
there is a common platform. So when Market Access is working on putting together a value proposition, which oftentimes and should start earlier in development, really around phase 2B, they rely on articulating evidence substantiation across a number of domains, one of them being medical clinical benefit, patient caregiver benefit, and then economic societal benefit. So in companies where this is working well or is at cutting edge, that liaising between the clinical, between the medical affairs team and the market access team to make sure that there's a consistent medical clinical narrative substantiated at the attribute level, whether it's efficacy, safety, tolerability, mechanism of action, all of that should be aligned. And one of the key challenges is that in product development and commercial life cycle, that information is dynamic, whether it be because there's additional clinical trials being done, whether there's real-world evidence generated, whether the competitive landscape changes. So in the places where this is coordinated the best and in an ideal situation, you've got that continuity and one voice of what is the medical narrative and how it is evolving so that you can build upon that in the value proposition and the value substantiation. It's kind of tricky, though, because if you have one message, one voice, different people are going to hear different things, aren't they? So we talked about that a little bit earlier, right, too, Jeff, the one-voice messaging or the concept of one-voice messaging. It doesn't mean that everybody's understanding the same message in the same way. But what it does mean is that if we have the right set of messages that we know we need to disseminate, how can we tailor those messages to make it most relevant for our audience or for our stakeholders, but still not changing the core of what the message is trying to say? So I have examples from my past life where certain messages and certain publications, and of course we're talking about the scientific messages now, but they were actually contradicting each other. One was coming from Europe, one was coming from the U.S., and they were exactly contradictory. So how do we avoid something like that? Clearly, it wasn't coming from the same message that was tailored. They were completely separate messages. So we want to avoid that by saying, as, as Susan mentioned, this is a dynamic document, but a document nonetheless that everybody is now looking at the same page, the same narrative, the same evidentiary needs. They're just understanding exactly how to tweak and tailor the message for their particular audience types. And so to add to that, as you look at the value proposition of a product, a lot of companies talk about the value propositions, plural. The best practice is that there is a single comprehensive value proposition that allows for an internally consistent story that's compelling, it's concise, and it's well substantiated. That doesn't mean that the stakeholders hear the same exact messages out of the value proposition. You still tailor components of it to the medical or prescriber audience. You would tailor components of it to the payer audience, to the patient audience. By having the value proposition singular, it means that it's internally consistent. You can pull different parts out of it, and it won't contradict other parts. And you can choose the words and the layman's terms or the functional terms that speak to the audience the best. And so when we talk about the medical narrative, we're talking about 
a single voice of where the evidence is coming from, what the substantiation of the evidence is, and how it's evolving, so that there's not a contradictory understanding of what information is available, where the gaps are, and how they might be filled. I was wondering if you could talk for a bit, Susan, on how a payer views some of these messages that might surprise someone when they're coming out and thinking that they're they're saying A, but for a payer, they're saying something very, very different. Well, so that's actually spot on the reason we're talking about market access and medical affairs working together. Because, in fact, the ability to feed in another perspective to know how something might be perceived is important in how it's developed. And the idea or the notion that the payer is perceiving a different perspective means that either the words can be chosen differently because they don't resonate, or working much earlier in development, it's easier to begin with the end in mind and understand that whether it's the clinical trial inclusion criteria or the endpoint selection or the magnitude of benefit, that there will be a number of audiences perceiving what it is that that means and whether or not it's relevant to their decision making. That's a great point, Susan, and I think it's important for people to remember that the publication that you published five to seven years ago is going to be relevant today for a payer. They're not going to look at a different set of publications that obviously haven't been published just for a payer audience. It's the same publication. So it's really important to understand the evidentiary needs and how people are consuming the evidence across the entire continuum of your stakeholder landscape to ensure that you're actually writing a particular publication in the right way for whoever is going to consume that evidence, and I put that in quotes. And I think a couple of examples in my career have been when trying to optimize the value of an asset and thinking, again, beginning with the end in mind and how these publications would be perceived. One example was the early publication referral of an innovation as a patch. And over time in the healthcare marketplace, patches had a certain value or had an incremental benefit over a pill or another delivery device. However, the real value of the product that was being developed was actually a drug-device combination. And a drug-device combination has a distinctly different value than a patch. But the medical community that was writing the early articles referred to it as a patch, and later the value proposition was written around a device-drug combination, two vastly different areas. Another example I've recently worked on is a gene therapy where, without a lot of in-depth thinking about it, the medical community was referring to it as a cure. And a cure has a really distinct meaning in terms of possibly a one-time treatment that would require no readministration and permanent fixing of a problem. Yet when we went out there to look at the target product profile and consider what might actually happen, it may have to be readministered. It may only lead to a percent improvement of the condition, not a hundred percent alleviation of it. So those types of publications and terminology really affect what is the perception of value later on. And so it's working together to have that 
one voice. The one voice isn't necessarily that every stakeholder hears exactly the same message. It's that the organization has one voice in knowing what they want to say about their product, what they can substantiate in compound development and evidence generation. And when. I think timing is a huge part of it, too. And I think it's important to note We talk a lot, even earlier we talked about starting with the end in mind and making sure that you're actually strategic about it, but none of this is a magical process. It really does require those conversations to happen early and continue to happen throughout the entire life cycle. So this is a process that we see as medical affairs, market access, and the rest of the organization, clinical and commercial, coming together to define what that narrative should be and then to define what the evidentiary needs are and to define how they're going to talk about the evidence. And the huge benefit of that is the transparency of it. So the idea that there is a narrative that's updated, the idea that there's an evidence matrix grid that transparently identifies where the information is coming from, when, what's the probability of success, is there a risk mitigation program needed if it were not successful, is critically important. There are a lot of functions collaborating in the development of a compound into the commercialization of a product. They all move at slightly different speeds, and there are a fair number of different areas of focus. So having one document that is updated regularly, that is the the source of the information and can be accessed by the various functions is critically important to making sure that over time, the organization can optimize speed in decision-making, can optimize resource allocation so there's not redundant allocation to either evidence generation or conflicting areas, and that there can be better coordination of decision-making. Is there a real risk that if you had two different messages? Let me just throw out there. You had one message for physicians, one completely different message for payers. Is there a risk that the payers would find out, or is this something that we just use because it's better for us internally. No, there's a easier. huge there's absolutely a huge risk and that's why you don't want to have different messages. You may have different words, you may have different emphasis of the message, but in the compelling, concise, internally consistent value proposition, it's impossible to have different messages that would contradict each other. So, for instance, you may talk to a payer about cost-effectiveness, budget impact, place in therapy, but you're not going to tell the payer that the product has a different place in therapy than the physician. Sure. You might use different words talking about how a payer would understand the sequencing of treatment or the way that the mechanisms of action operate, but you're not going to explain a different mechanism of action or a different set of patients. You might just use different terminology that is meaningful to them. And it's important to remember, when we say message, people tend to think of the commercial side of the word message, right? We mean a scientific message, meaning it is substantiated by data. So when we say message, we really mean evidence or data. You cannot have two sides of the same piece of data. You have to make sure that you're actually following the science, you're explaining the science, Yes, you may take different aspects of the science when you're speaking with a payer versus an HCP versus a patient advocacy group, but it's still the same data that's really the crux of everything that flows from it. What do you do if it's too late? 
you weren't there at 2B when the product started. You inherited it. Maybe you're a product manager and it got it near the end of phase three. What now? I think it's really important. We do have several organizations that come to us with that same problem. We didn't think five to seven years ahead of launch. We're actually 18 months ahead of launch. We're six months ahead of launch. What do we do? I think that's where it becomes even more important to have this cross-functional collaboration happen as soon as possible. You still need to understand how you're positioning the therapy and the science within the marketplace. You still have to understand who are your stakeholders and how vast does that stakeholder network go. You still have to understand what are the evidentiary needs for each of those stakeholders and how are you going to communicate it effectively and optimally. And you still have to do that with cross-collaboration across the entire function for a particular asset. It just needs to happen faster. What would surprise us, Susan, for what a payer sees as a message that other stakeholders just don't see? What does a payer need that other stakeholders wouldn't have? Or if you just understood very well, for example, what your physician message is, you might have missed the ball for the payer. Well, I think that to answer it maybe a little bit differently than it was asked, I think one of the areas that often surprise companies is that clinical trial inclusion and exclusion criteria typically are the gift that pharma hands payers in pre-writing the reimbursement and access criteria that the payers impose. So oftentimes we see that companies are surprised that in negotiation with the FDA, they may get a broader label than they expected. However, payers will restrict the product based upon the inclusion-exclusion criteria in the trial. So that's something where there can often be a disconnect where commercial is very excited that the label is broad. Clinical feels very positive that the trial results were strong enough that the agency is willing to give a broad label and then the payer is not willing to play ball and go along with it. So I think that's, you know, something that we like to inform our clients about is that really, again, back to the begin with the end in mind, that whether they have planned for it or not, their early decisions can have lasting impact. So finally, for you, uh, you Sumo, or, or you, Susan, what is it that medical affairs and market access get about being together? I mean, why do they want to be together other than they have one message? I think that's a great question, and maybe both of us can answer it. But from a medical affairs perspective, and we talked about this earlier, but there has never been a time like this where medical affairs has really taken a more strategic place at the seat of the table for an organization. They really do have a different remit than they may have before. They're no longer a support function. They actually have the ability to go out and gather the right insights and bring it back to the organization and then work with their colleagues in market access and clinical and and in commercial to really understand the evidentiary needs and to own that strategy part of it. And beyond that, I think both market access and medical affairs does have that evidence substantiation that's required to make the entire therapy successful for the organization. I couldn't agree more. I think that you're talking about two functions that are looking at a breadth of stakeholder needs in terms of meeting them with evidence substantiation. And market access has fought its way to have a seat earlier in development to build the value proposition. And that value proposition is built upon a medical, clinical platform no matter what. So having a product that works is a necessary condition for reimbursement. 
It may no longer be a sufficient condition, but it's absolutely necessary. So unless the market access team can work with evidence substantiation that shows medical clinical benefit, it's a non-starter. So there is a very strong and natural partnership here. Susan Saponsik, Suma Ramadas, thanks for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or just want to talk through a challenge you're facing at your biopharma company, you may email me at podcast at com. That's podcast at syneoshealth.com. We're consultants. That's what we do. You cannot have two sides of the same piece of data.